Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What do the ending of John's Gospel and the first chapters of Acts teach us about the problem of human feelings? How do our assumptions about love and its relationship to emotion cripple our ability to fulfill God's instruction? Why is it destructive and idolatrous to associate the Holy Spirit with an emotional response? Don't trust your feelings. Don't follow your heart. Turn off the Disney Channel and stay tuned to this podcast. You might not feel good, but we promise not to lie to you. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benson. And you are listening to episode 66 of the Bible as Literature podcast. You know, Richard, as a pastor, I'm constantly working with people on relationship issues, problems within families, problems within marriages. And of course, working through those situations, there's always one answer at the bottom of every well, and that is to submit to the other in love. And whenever I come to that point with a parishioner or someone that I'm counseling, this false light goes off, I think, inside their mind that, oh, it's about how I feel about the other person. And it's very frustrating in those situations because as we talk through all of the different challenges and disagreements and problems that they're having within their specific situation, the common thread throughout all is that emotion clouds judgment. It gives us tunnel vision. Right. And so always, I think the struggle is to get people to see that the only thing that counts is love, number one that love is not about emotion, number two, and that true biblical love requires self-discipline that revolves around logic. And there's this reaction against logic as though somehow it's heartless or cold, when in fact it's logic that distinguishes the human being from other animals in creation. It's our ability to reason. Emotion is a physical impulse. It's a hormonal impulse that functions as a mechanism of self-preservation either for the individual or for a person they have a feeling about or a situation they have a feeling about. But the very fact that emotion is linked to self-preservation from a scriptural perspective is problematic. Right. Love is not an emotion. Love is an action. Love is not how you feel in your heart. Love is what you do. You don't love with your heart. You love with your feet. You walk and you walk in a particular way when you love another. And this is what I think is striking about how Scripture always is pushing us, always trying to just yank us out of this quagmire of emotion that we get stuck in. And I think after we have the big emotional climax of Pascha and Holy Week 
and we feel all emotional. Realize the way that we feel all emotional is we sing some songs and flip the lights on and off, and all of a sudden people have this spiritual experience. Is this what scripture is about? I don't think so. We don't have a lot of flipping lights on and off in scripture, but we make a really big deal about it on Holy Saturday and on Holy Friday and on Pascha. And the point of all this is that it's trying to produce a particular kind of action out of human beings. And the weekend after Pascha is always exhausting to people. They don't want to go to church. They've been to all the extra church. They figure they've earned up a little bit extra so they cannot come or do whatever they need to do. The thing is, is that we have to remember it's not about emotion. And fortunately, the readings we have on Thomas Sunday are not about, well, I was going to say they're not about emotion. They're about emotion and about the problems of emotion. In the gospel reading of John, Jesus says that he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit. Everyone loves this. Everyone loves how they get breathed on them by the Holy Spirit, and you can just feel the Holy Spirit come into you, and you know how those apostles must have felt. They must have felt so energized and happy. But that's not how the reading actually goes. If you read it, first of all, they're terrified. That's why they were in the upper room with the doors locked. Which is another emotion, by the way. It's totally, it's, it, I mean, and talk about self-preservation. I think it made a lot of sense. It's like their teacher was just smashed. They know what happens to the students of teachers who were smashed. Bad things happen to them. So it's not without reason that they hide there. But the point is, is that they weren't students of Jesus so that they could be a movement. It's so that they could be teachers. And when you're up in an upper room locked in and you are the students of this teacher, then the teaching is dead along with the teacher. So the teacher has to finally, who got some rest, has to get up out of the grave and say, you know what? I didn't die so you guys could huddle in a room. And so before he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm sending you out. Just like he did with the Gerasene demoniac, you know, after he says, can I leave those people who just kicked me out of my home? He says, okay, go preach to them. It's funny because when he says, receive the Holy Spirit, while people tend to associate the spirit with emotion, which is a very serious form of idolatry in our culture, the reality is the spirit is curing them of their emotions so that they can be rational. Well, and we talked before about the way that spirit functions in scripture. Spirit is that motivating force in you that allows you to act in a particular way. Without a spirit, you don't have breath and you're dead. You can't perform any actions. When you have the spirit of Satan, you perform satanic evil actions. When you have the spirit of God, you perform godly actions according to his Torah, obedient actions. When the spirit of Satanas is excised from you through evangelism and all of the varying pericopes in the Gospels, repeatedly you find the one who has been healed clothed and sitting in their right mind, which means that the Spirit of God, which is the understanding of his Evangelion, produces sobriety. It casts out emotion. I think that this is an extremely important point that you raise. And then, after this, Thomas gets to hear, oh, guess what? Jesus came. And he says, unless I put my finger in the wounds, which is a horribly gruesome image. I'm like, really? Like, it's not enough for him to even see them? He has to stick his finger in them? And we talk about— He's from the Middle East. We're melodramatic. What can I tell you? (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) We call him Doubting Thomas because he doesn't believe. But again, I want to emphasize, it's not belief, it's trust. He does not trust the apostles. Well, for heaven's sake, if the guy who was with Jesus all along 
doesn't even trust the report that he rose from the dead, which he was supposed to know from the scriptures anyway, what hope is there for him? So Jesus comes back, and he's like, okay, fine, stick your fingers in the, in the hole, and now you can see. And he says, my Lord, my God. And then John, knowing that we're going to get very excited, he says, you know what? I could tell you more stories about miracles, but you know enough already. And that's the end of that part of the gospel. But then it's very troubling because then he goes the last chapter of John and talks about another miracle in front of the apostles, which was kind of surprising to me because I'm like, this would have been an awesome note to end on. Why would John ruin it? And so Jesus does the miracle with the fish and they can't catch anything and then he gets to bring in all these fish and everything. By the way, it's a good question you're asking because I think Jesus is very explicit, much like the writings in the Old Testament. There's lots of stuff that isn't written about. It isn't written about because it's irrelevant. What matters is what is written, which again, with respect to the theme of the podcast today, is important because what is written is a word, a logos. It's meaning, it's text. It's something to be processed rationally. So you're right to ask, okay, if he's saying there's a bunch of stuff that isn't written, which means if it's not written, it doesn't matter. What's written is written for your sake. And now John is writing about another miracle in a way it should really draw your ears to the next miracle because it's there for a very serious reason. Well, and it's to make the fishermen more successful and get more fish, which is great. They're very happy. But the thing is, it's really a setup for Peter because in the following discussion, when they're sitting around eating, enjoying the meal that Jesus provided for them, Jesus now pounds Peter, feed my sheep. In the same gospel where when Jesus was in trouble and on trial, Peter was warming himself. So what do we know about Peter from John? He likes to keep himself warm, and he likes to eat. (laughs) I can respect that, but I know that it doesn't end well for Peter. And so finally, when Jesus says to Peter to feed the sheep for the third time, and Peter's exhausted, and he finally relents, then Jesus tells him that he's going to live and he's going to die a gruesome death. And you can see the wind just come out of the sails of poor Peter because finally he's like, okay, I'm going to feed them. I'm going to do your bidding. And he's like, oh, but then the end. So then Peter says, well, what about the other disciple? And he points to the beloved disciple in John. And Jesus says, that's none of your business. He might still be alive when I come back. And then John says, so then the apostles were all saying, the beloved disciple is not going to die. But Jesus never said that. Jesus said, what does it matter to you? So John clarifies the misunderstanding of the apostles. So the last miracle sets up one more scene for Peter to be humiliated, Peter to try to get out of his humiliation, and then just a general humiliation over the entire apostles, and then the gospel ends on this note. So the one last miracle that we get is one that's a setup to show that the apostles don't get it, they're finger-pointing, they don't understand, they don't actually want to get it, and that's the end of the gospel. So in the end, the apostles didn't get it. And then it moves right into Acts, which is very funny. The apostles know nothing. You know, people wonder, Luke and Acts, you know, they they should be together since they're by the same author. You put John in between. Well, look what happens when we put John in between. The apostles are all set up, and then you move right into Acts 1 and 2, and... Jesus is gone, and the apostles have got to do their thing. Luke and Acts fit together. They are a diptych, without a doubt, just like John Revelation Mm -hmm. is a diptych. But I think when you look at Scripture as storyline, you realize that it's a collaborative effort, whoever these authors were. And while it might be the same author that penned the Luke-Acts diptych, the storyline fits together in a certain way. It's like having a novel where you write chapter 1, 
I write chapter two and you write chapter three. And suddenly we say, okay, chapters one and three are the Benton diptych. Well, that's true. It is the Benton diptych. But Father Mark wrote chapter two. And chapter two comes after chapter one. So I, just, I think that's an interesting side point. Right. And in I terms think, of the formation of the canon. And I, for the formation of the canon, but also the storyline. Yeah. Because then look what happens. You have apostles who really are just humiliated. I mean, the end of Matthew, which is awesome. Go out, baptize all nations. Everyone gets excited at the end of Matthew. But the end of John, it's like, uh, you don't feel so happy. It's not a feel-good ending. Well, it shouldn't be in John because the historical context for the Johannine literature is the persecution against the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, John Revelation, Tarazi points out, the John Revelation diptych is an invitation historically to embrace martyrdom. This is what Jesus is trying to say. The teaching can't stay under lock and key in the upper room. So why are you afraid of the Romans? I mean, it's not about fear of the Jews, even though that's the metaphor. It's about the fear of persecution, the generally fear of persecution. speaking. Exactly. It's the fear of persecution because the fear of persecution can only flourish at the detriment of the gospel and vice versa. So Jesus says to Peter, you're going to die in a gruesome way. So get out there and do the thing. Jesus is not trying to make them feel good. Jesus is trying to get them to do the right thing. And as the apostles, they are sent out to preach the gospel. And this is the only thing that they need to do. This is the only task that they have. Any love they have for Jesus, any excitement they have for Jesus, Jesus will believe when he sees the actions. Relating back to the opening comments about relationships and dealing with family issues, in almost every example in pastoral life, when you're helping people work through a difficult problem, what they want to do is connected to emotion. It could be fear. It could be sentimentality about a child or a relative. But those emotions stop them from walking the path that is dictated for them by the rule of the gospel. So it's about submitting to the rule of the gospel at the expense of satisfying your emotions. And when the rule of the gospel, which is love, is demanding of you submission and martyrdom, either literally martyrdom or on a mundane level, putting others before yourself and in an objective way, emotion becomes a serious obstacle to doing the right thing. And we see this then in Acts 5. People are laying, they're sick and dying, people on the ground, and just the shadow of an apostle can heal them and bring them back to health. And we do know they're going to die in the end. So what's the point? These people are living on borrowed time, and they have a responsibility then to go and do something to love others and to teach as a result of this miracle that happened for them. The beginning of Acts chapter 5 is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a thing, doesn't say what thing, and Ananias goes and brings part of the money to the apostles, and Peter says, why didn't you bring us the whole thing? And then he kills Ananias on the spot. And then Sapphira, they bring her in. They don't warn her about what happened. They say, is this the whole amount? And she says, yes, it is the whole amount. You're lying, and then you're dead. So there's this horribly troubling, gruesome image right before the super exciting one with people getting healed. So the apostles, through the word and through the teaching, don't just bring life and healing. They also bring death. And in that portion of Acts, everyone in the church was afraid. 
So they were afraid in the first one, and then they're super excited in the second one. And then the final episode in this chapter, the Sadducees go and collect Peter and the apostles and put them in jail because they don't want them teaching. Then through a miracle, they're released from jail, and they go right back to teaching, which is saying that you are not allowed to keep the teaching in a box. But when we base this all on emotion, we do keep it in a box. Here's what I mean by that. We want to have the exciting thing about Jesus raising up the sick and the apostles raising up the sick. Once you are under the gospel, once you have dedicated yourself to the teaching of the apostles, then you have an obligation to be 100% in. You aren't allowed to hold back. So even if you did go through some great miracle of being healed or whatever, it's not so you can feel good. It's so that you can go all in on the gospel and perform every single action that is expected of you. This is the point. And when we say that Jesus is supposed to be good, that God just wants us to be happy, that we just want our families to get along with each other. This is demonic talk. Exactly. It's vain talk. This is what the gospel is trying to get out of us. Correct. Because we don't understand that if things are going well, we have a duty to do the gospel. If things are going badly, we have a duty to do the gospel. Whether we were healed, whether we're sick, whether we haven't been sick, We still have to perform the actions of the Torah with our feet. Look, this is what love is. Love is getting up and cooking breakfast for someone, no matter how you feel. Love is getting up and going to work for the sake of the family, no matter how you feel. Love is making sure that if you have to pick up your child at a certain hour, you are there on time, ready to take care of them, no matter how you feel. Love is when your spouse angers you or when you're sick of being with your spouse that you still conduct yourself correctly towards them. That is love. It is exactly the opposite of how we define love in popular literature. It's all about those actions that you take again and again and again. Sometimes there's an emotion that's buttressing that. Sometimes you're going directly contrary to your emotions. The emotions are irrelevant. In the same way that preaching the gospel has no respect for whatever danger or safety there may be around teaching the gospel. Selfishness, right? Selfishness is telling somebody what they want to hear so that they like you. Selfishness is giving someone what they want so that it makes you feel good because you want them to appreciate you. It's absolutely destructive, and people think of this as love. When in fact, love is knowing what someone needs to hear, no matter how painful it is, and saying it to them. Love is identifying the things that people want so bad that it's destroying them and taking those things away from them. That's love. Love means risking a relationship. Love means foregoing popularity or acceptance in order to say or to do what must be said for the sake of individuals and the community. Love is a very serious matter. People dismiss scripture and say, oh, I get it. We're supposed to love each other. But what they don't realize is that the practice of love is a discipline like karate or jujitsu. It's a kind of all-encompassing wisdom that requires constant vigilance, constant discipline, constant study, 
constant reflection and constant practice in order to be able to carry it out. Because in the moment, you will not know what to say if you've not been practicing. And it requires constant correction as well, because we all are victims of our own ego and of our emotions, and we always need to come back to Scripture to have that be corrected. Because what happens is, as human beings, we fall into a legalism. Oh, as long as I'm going to work, as long as I'm making the breakfast, as long as I'm doing this, then I'm good. If your wife tells you, I would like you to spend more time doing this, and your answer is, I work so hard, I go to a job every day, you're no longer committing an act of love when you go to work because you're justified by your action, which means that you don't need your reward in the heavens because you already have everything you want. You're the hero of the family. And this happens within any community as well because we set up our rules and regulations for being in, for being out. For example, what about those people that didn't have a great meal on Pascha? How are we dealing with them? Forgo Pascha and go take care of the other person. Oh, but we can't do that. How can we miss Pascha? And this is precisely why we fall into the trap of the Sadducees. We want to keep that word locked up because when that word goes out and just preaches, it very well may be preaching against us. The reality is that what you feel on Pascha is immaterial. You may say, I feel sad for those people that are hungry. Well, your sadness and 50 cents will not pay for my coffee in the morning. You may say that I feel satisfied that, you know, I'm doing the right thing because we can't fix all the problems in the world, Father Mark. And I just, you know, I think it's reasonable to want to be happy on Pascha and enjoy a good time with my family. Well, you may be happy on Pascha, but once again, your feelings are immaterial. Because from the perspective of Scripture, the measuring stick that God uses against the church is the weakest among the brethren, the weakest link, those of the lowest status, or as the Magnificat says, lowest state. I love that expression. It's the least of these, the widow, the orphan, the homeless person, etc. And yeah. how you feel about them is, doesn't matter. It's what you do for their sake or don't do. And I love the way that Acts chapter 5 ends because we have Gamaliel, the doctor of the Pharisees, who says, you know, I suggest you just leave these guys alone. I suggest, you know, you remember we had another Messiah and he was killed and all of his disciples were scattered. And we had another one. We had Judas of Galilee and he was destroyed and his people were scattered. So if this teaching is of human beings, it's going to peter out on its own. If this teaching is of God, then there's nothing you can do to stop it anyway. So I suggest you just leave it alone. And so rather than putting our efforts into making sure that the gospel looks a particular way or that love looks a particular way or that you check all these boxes off to know that you're loving or not, you just let the love run rampant. And I don't mean hippie style. I'm talking about let the love run rampant in our actions. Let's love studiously. Let's love rationally. Let's love with discipline. Let's love radically in that way in that we try to have every action of ours be an action of love and submission. Oh, are you saying to be a doormat? Maybe. But if you say this is what happens. But doormat's an emotional statement. Doormat is an emotional statement. Don't put me in a box, you Sadducee. Are we supposed to be a doormat? I don't know. Let's be like Gamaliel. Maybe. You have to be able to love without being governed by your feelings, without being nudged or inhibited by your feelings simply governed by the rule of the gospel. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Father. Take care.
just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.